Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are moving along in our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels Part 28. In the previous episode, we learned that John the Baptist starts his criticism of Herod Antipas and subsequently gets imprisoned because of it. And we have this sort of transitioning going on kind of like the baton being passed from John the Baptist to Jesus. And we get this clear moment where after John the Baptist gets in prison, Jesus starts saying the same thing that John started his ministry with, which is repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, which is this really great picture to show that the gospel has this unified story, whether it's the one who paved the way or the Messiah himself. Yeah, exactly. Well, we also saw him return to Capernaum from Nazareth and sort of start to settle in there. We saw how prophecies in Isaiah were being fulfilled uh, with that association in Capernaum about being this light uh, to the people and it's being fulfilled through his own life and ministry. And then we saw a specific story along the Sea of Galilee where uh, multiple of his future disciples were fishing uh, and Jesus interacts with them and kind of gives them advice, which is a little bit unexpected considering his vocation compared to these guys <laughs> right. and this great miracle of in the daytime when you don't expect to be fishing in first century Jewish culture, like two boats, boatloads full of fish that their, that their boats were starting to sink. And they were all just amazed at what was happening. Simon Peter didn't feel worthy to be, you know, in the presence of this man that right. was able to command creation in this way. Uh, now Jesus is about to pick up right after that miracle. Yeah. Yeah, we are, for all practical purposes, just continuing that story. So I guess we'll go ahead and um, let's see. First, maybe I should mention, remember that that little story that we took from Luke about the miraculous catch, we had pulled that a little bit out of sequence in the book of Luke, and we're going to come back to that because it's an important bit that we're doing here. And then as we start, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 19 to 22, Mark, chapter 1, verses 17 to 20, and then Luke, chapter 5, 10 and 11. I want to read through these a little bit, just just so we can see how these all sort of sound alike or different or whatever. So here we go. Ready? Yeah. Matthew four nineteen. And he said to them, that's Jesus speaking to the guys in the boat, and he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So, that, I don't know if you're catching it, that sounds a little bit weird in relation to the story we just read in Luke, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't doesn't seem to line up really well, and we know that, we admit that. But remember, when Matthew was telling the story, all he had said was, he was walking by the sea, and he saw Simon and Andrew casting a net, they were fishermen. Now, Mark did very much the same thing in his telling of the story, and so his little bit here is going to sound very similar. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. Hmm. Oh, now all of a sudden we get an image of, wait a second, maybe there were more people in the boat, right? Yeah. 
But we won't stick too much on that. Let's go get that final bit. Remember, Luke is the one that told the whole big story about the miraculous catch, and it ends up this way, second half of verse 10, uh, Luke 5.10, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Okay, this this is where it all starts to get, you know, really interesting, at least in terms of, wait, we've got multiple stories and that there's differences. What, yeah, what, what is really going on? So let's talk about a few of them. Uh, number one, I'd like to just point out, and this is going to be focusing a little bit on the Luke version and the sequence that we've used. So you've got this boat, you've got the teaching, followed by the miraculous catch, and then, uh, like especially in Simon, we see the recognition of who this guy is and who they are. And then Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men. I love that because I think what it does is show that wherever you are in in your walk as a Christian, in this story, wherever you are uh, in your thinking, in relation to Jesus, whatever, Jesus just seems to have this knack for saying the thing that's going to force you on to the next step or the next level or the next thing. I mean, there was a time, I don't know, it's probably 20 years ago now or something when everybody who went to church, it was like every Sunday, oh man, we're, we're going to the next level. We're, we're, we're doing the next great thing, right? It got very, just ridiculous. I got so tired of hearing it, but it's a real thing. I mean, we live lives and, and we progress our way through, we mature, all of that. And so Jesus seems to just have a knack for saying the thing at the moment that's going to push you a little a little outside your box. So we know, Samuel, I mean, it takes real skill to be a good fisher of fish. Isn't that true? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, and of course, this is true about every occupation. True? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, similarly, one can become very skilled at being a good fisher of men. Somehow, they are going to have to learn how to catch them, men, how to catch them from the world that they're currently living in, whatever that even means, and bringing them out to a new and different kind of world, um, at least in their mind, the way they perceive a worldview, maybe would even be a better way to say it. And in this case, it is the kingdom. And so Jesus is going to train them how to catch men. Now, Samuel, I, this is a fun question. If, if this is sort of an analogy that Jesus is using here, what do you think is the thing that the disciples are going to use that is analogous to the nets? I mean, I would say their, their lives as a whole, their actions, what they say, um, kind of their their witness on how how they represent themselves, yeah, as followers of this Jesus rabbi. Yeah, I think all of those things are true. And, and what mind what my mind does is try to go to, okay, but but when you're fishing, you you have this tool, if we can call it that, and you're purposely using it in a manner, trying to grab things, bring things in, whatever. So out of all of the, all that you said, I focus on the words, the message that they have, the things that they're saying. That's what's going to be catching the the people. All those other things are, of course, included and important, and all of that. That's that's where I try to draw the line in my analogy. Though mm-hmm. this connects to that. Now uh, another thing that's kind of funny about this. Uh, I don't know if you notice when we're reading in Matthew and Mark. It actually says that Jesus is speaking to them. Uh, But in Luke, it's kind of funny. Jesus only speaks to Simon. Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. But then, and this is true in all three, it's they that follow. 
So I just, I just think it's interesting that, that he would speak to Simon alone, but they would follow. It's just, I don't know, very interesting. And now you also got to think this, Samuel. So here these guys are. What do they do for a living? They fish. Yeah. And Jesus has just said, hey, leave what you're doing and come with me. But what did he do right before he told them to leave what they're doing and come with me? Uh, He just allowed them to get an insane catch. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to think that one way or another in their brains, there's something about that that helps them. It, it, It helps them to not worry about provision, whether that is for themselves alone or if they have a family that they're leaving behind. They don't have to worry too much about provision because apparently Jesus has got this handled one way or another. We don't know what it's going to look like. It's probably unpredictable, but Jesus has got it in control. Now, Luke suggests, like in his version of the story, he's suggesting that James and John saw and heard all of this whole thing. And in fact, the, the way I read it, it, it seems like they probably even participated But again, that Matthew and Mark story, they treat James and John like it's a separate incident. Uh, You know, he he called Simon and Andrew, and then he went a little further, and then he called James and John. Interesting. Which one is right? I mean, these are are supposed to be stories that are all the same. Why why are they so different, right? And who knows? I I think uh, on one hand, you've got people telling the stories and time has passed. You've got people telling the stories here in the Gospels for a specific reason. All of this plays into it. But I think it's important to also remember, uh, Peter and Andrew, they've been around Jesus before. And and this is important for us to kind of pull something back from the memory banks. So they were at the uh, the wedding in Cana, They were with him in Jerusalem. Apparently, there were a lot of things that went on there. They just didn't tell us what any of that stuff was. Uh, They were with him when he was uh, with the woman at the well, although there weren't any great miracles or anything. But but I'm just saying, all of these little stories along the way, they've been included. And we even went a little further, and we speculated that John was sort of the anonymous guy that, that was included back in the stories. And so it could be that John and even James were also uh, with him and in, involved and saw all of these things before, just that the, the text that we have doesn't explicitly say it. But anyway, we, we think we got that. So what's important, though, you go back to those stories, and do you remember Remember they were, uh, they were with John the Baptist? This, this is the, the part we should probably try to remember, focus on. They're with John the Baptist. Jesus walks by. John the Baptist says, look. It's the Lamb of God, right? Remember all that? And then what did they do? Didn't they sort of question, they, they were asking John the Baptist about his validity, Jesus' validity on what he was doing, but then eventually they sort of kind of asked to leave John's tutelage and go to, to Jesus. Yeah, now you're picking up on different parts of the story, right? And And that's good. I was going back to the one where they actually just started following Jesus. Remember, we, we teased about, you know, Jesus was feeling the creepy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were asking, where are you staying? And all of those things. It's like they invited themselves. Jesus never said anything to them other than come and see or come and learn, that kind of thing. And that adds up with what we've said in first century Judaism, that it's not the teacher or the rabbi that seeks out the student, it's the students that go and seek out the teacher that they want to follow. Yeah, and that is, that's a very, very common thing. It's a common saying, all of that. So so they wanted to see at that time who this guy really was. Who is this Jesus character? But now, it really is kind of turned around. Now we see Jesus very specifically and intentionally calling them to follow him. And this is more of a full-time thing, an exclusive thing. And they did. Because, I mean, think about it. They've been around Jesus before. 
but now they're back doing their job, running their business, so to speak. And so he calls them and they join him. Now, again, we're not sure about James and John. We're we're speculating a little bit about John, but whatever their prior knowledge and experience was, the miraculous catch, at least from Luke's perspective, was definitely enough for them too. They they see what's going on and boom, Jesus says, come with me and they go. Now, I just want to mention one little weird thing. Uh, We're reading through the book of Mark and I'm not sure why, but for a few verses here, I didn't count them. I don't know, five, six, seven, something. He seems to become completely enamored with the word immediately. And it's it's kind of funny when somebody points it out and then you go back and start reading it, it's like, man, he's saying that word a lot. What is, what's going on? Well, let's at least say this on the outset. If you think about the word immediately, you might think that it means without any elapse of time, immediately. But you know that it could almost, it could also mean the next thing, the next immediate thing. And I think that this is, this is what Mark's trying to do when he says, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. He's not saying, he's not trying to give you the idea that no time elapsed. He's trying to give you the idea, this is the next thing that happened and this is the next thing that happened. So I'm, I'm kind of setting it up because we're going to hear that word a lot and you just need to be aware of it. And it's going to become important later in the story so we don't get a bad picture, or a bad image of what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those things you said are so good. I have a comment and then really quick question because I don't want to keep us from moving on uh, with the story. But yeah, bring it on. I wanted to focus on your analogy of what is the analogous thing um, with the, the catching fish analogy with nets for men or mankind. And you said that it was our words. I think mm, that it's important yeah. to re- for us to reiterate that I think that it's different or it's deeper than just having like your tract memorized or I know one thing I did when I was in collegiate ministry in college was like having this bridge illustration memorized and being able to draw when I was explaining to people what the gospel was and not that there's any problem with that and those aren't helpful but yeah those words are I, I feel like I know that you use this a lot but it's almost a better um addition could be like some someone's testimony on how yeah. you are explaining to these other people who don't know what the gospel is or haven't experienced it intimately how God has met you where you're at and you are partnering with him and you're seeing these changes take place that's bringing the kingdom down into your little bubble of reality with yourself and those that you're connected with um and yeah. It it reminds me of Paul, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 4, in, in verse 6, in the fourth chapter, he says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And so it's almost mm-hmm. as if as you're walking out your faith with God, uh, and as you're seeing the fruit happen, there's a level of attraction that should be going on that is kind of like salt to other people where they, they crave it, yeah. they savor it, they want more of it, and that's what brings them in. Um, so I just wanted yeah. to say that part first. <laughs> and yeah, salt and light are good things, yeah. that's right. And then my question is, would, have, would the disciples have been familiar with the phrase, from now on you will be catching men? Like, Would that have been a Jewish type of a statement that would not have come across as foreign to them? Well, um, it, it, you know, it's funny that you asked that because I do remember reading in some of my research that, that there were some suggestions that that was a, a phrase that, that had appeared in some of the older Jewish writings. Now, the question is, your question, would they have been familiar with this or not? And I'm usually the guy who's going, yeah, yeah, see, they'd be familiar with everything. I really don't know. I don't know about this one because... I, like I said, I remember seeing that in some of my research, but it was uh, a definite minority. It, it, it wasn't something that was talked about often. And so for whatever that's worth, my mind usually takes that and goes, yeah, uh, I don't know how common that was then. I mean, if, if this one guy found it and th- or, you know, whatever, how come others didn't know about it or talk about it? So I'm unsure. Okay. I'm just unsure. But 
I definitely put it on the maybe. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. All right. So uh, the next little bit here, um, we're going to move. This has just got some from Mark and from Luke. Mark 1, 21 and 22. Luke 4, 31 and 32. Notice the little bit of out of sequence there. It's important. And Mark 1, 21 says this. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And Luke's is, you know, kind of similar, Luke 4.31, and he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Okay. I don't know if you remember, but Matthew has already told us that he is living in Capernaum. Mm -hmm. And here, he leaves the seashore, he enters Capernaum, and he enters a synagogue on the Sabbath. And so, I don't know, I guess it depends on your translation and how you're reading it. You may wonder, was this on the same day? Was it on a different day? Well, if we're thinking about the Luke version with the, the miraculous catch, you go, well, they were out fishing. And, and I mean, even in the other versions, at least they were by their boats, playing with their nets, that kind of stuff. So I got to think this has got to be a different day because they're not going to be out with their boats, playing with their nets, doing a miraculous catch, any of that stuff on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So I think we're talking about a different day, but he gets there, he goes into the synagogue and he starts teaching. Now, synagogues, I'm not sure, I can't remember exactly how much we talked about this before. I think we've covered it. Synagogues usually involve their local members predominantly. Uh, I think we even mentioned uh, at one point about how, you know, if there happened to be a, a priest available, they would go first, and if there was a Levite, they would go next, and then you had people in your own little uh, assembly, whatever. And that that's all normal, still in play here. And and that seemed to be a pattern throughout the synagogues generally, but they were also very open to having guests speak or even teach at some point. And so uh, at this point, what we don't know is Jesus, is he more like a member now because he's, he's moved there or is he more like a guest? Uh, we don't really know, but for whichever way it is, they're going to let him talk. So that's probably you know, it's good, good for them. And we've seen this now multiple times. People are astonished. They're amazed at his teaching. And just got to say it again, it has to be very different from whatever he had been saying and teaching in his Nazareth synagogue for his first 30 plus years. And we're attributing that to the baptism of John, the Holy Spirit coming in its fullness, remaining on him, all that stuff. But whatever it is, it's astonishing, it's amazing. But here we get a, a little extra bit of information. Why was it amazing? Why was it astonishing? Samuel, did you see that? Because um, it said that he taught as one who had authority or possessed authority. Yeah. yeah. It's It was... The authority that was in his teaching that was so astonishing. Now, we know, I mean, we, we sort of look backward at the story. We know he has this authority. We know his words possess authority. But just so you can get the picture, in his day, in his time, if you were back there, it was normal for any teacher to uh, stand on the shoulders of those who had come before. And, and they did that by referencing their own teacher, and, and sometimes his teacher, and even his teacher before him, etc. This is the thing that gave their words authority. Whenever they were going to make a statement, they would say, so-and-so says, or so-and-so said, and he heard from so-and-so, and he heard from so-and-so, and then he'll say, that is where the authority came from. But at least the way it's presented in, in the Gospels, at least the way we, we can understand it, 
Jesus doesn't seem to need any of that. He doesn't seem to reference anybody anywhere ever. And we don't even know if Jesus had a master-disciple kind of relationship. I mean, he was a firstborn. We know that at some point his father must have died and and he was probably taken over the, the head of household. And I mean, what were his opportunities? What did it really look like? And so Jesus isn't referencing anyone. He's speaking with his own voice and his voice alone. And you might even think, uh, uh, what are some, uh, a common thing that you see in the scriptures, right? You'll hear something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, yeah, that kind of formula. Well, his wasn't riddled with references to other men's teachings or sayings. Uh, now, we're not specifically given his teaching here, so we don't know what he talked about. But we do know that usually when he talked, it was a little bit outside the box. Maybe not outside the box of scripture and the big story and God, but definitely outside the box of what people had been accustomed to hearing. It was challenging in some way. It challenged uh, maybe even the prevailing wisdom of the day. And and it called for or required more or, or much from the listener. But it also promised more. So, I don't know. It, I would give anything to be able to time travel. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back there and hear it, Samuel, but... Be a fly on the wall. Can't do it, so there we go. Now, is this not in contradiction to, say, the Sermon on the Mount when we get there in Matthew 5 when Jesus says a lot, you have heard that it said, and then it seems like he's, instead of maybe referencing a former teacher, he's quoting the Torah itself, and then he expounds on it, or he shows the the inner workings of the wisdom of that portion of Torah by him saying, but I say to you, a way to treat that is a different type of standing on the shoulders of those who came before compared to this situation right now. Well, if I understand your question, I'd say no. Um, uh, but what Jesus was doing, and, and we'll talk about it more when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, this whole uh, and I'm going to call it a formula that says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, everybody talked that way. This wasn't something that Jesus made up. Other teachers were doing it, except it would have been something like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, in the words of, you know, Gamaliel, or his teacher, fill in the blank, or his teacher, fill in the blank, blah, 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 blah. So they would use the formula, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and they, they, they weren't changing something that the teacher said, they were bringing clarity to a thing that they knew from the scriptures. So this is a very common thing. The difference was that Jesus was bringing that clarity with no appeals to authority whatsoever other than his own. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is, that, is that what you were getting at? Did I answer that right? Yeah. Yeah, I just... Or <laughs> sufficiently? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows if anything we say is right. Mm-hmm. All right, so moving on. What do we got? Mark, okay, we're going to stick with Mark and Luke here. Mark 1, 23 through 26, and Luke 4, 33 to 35. Uh, oh, oh, this gets interesting. Well, what's that? Uh, hang on to your butts. <laughs> here we go. Uh Mark one twenty three, And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now, Luke's telling is similar, but let's go ahead and do it. Luke four thirty three, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? 
Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Now I must say, I love your voices. That's sort of like a little Skeletor throwback, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry (laughs) about that. It just comes out the way it comes out. Yeah, well, here we go. So, okay. So, again, we're trying to get back in the movie, right? Things seem to be going really well in that day. Until. In the synagogue, right? Yeah. Until. So, again, notice how Mark says it. And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man. Okay. Did he just appear out of nowhere, like, dink-a-dink-a-dink, boing, (laughs) you know, bewitched or something? No. Immediately, like, this is the next thing that happened. So there's a man in the synagogue that day with an unclean spirit. Here's a question, Samuel. Did he only show up on this one day at this one time? Or was he a regular? Was he actually a member of the assembly? I've... The no idea. Right. How can we know? But I got to say, I, I come down on the side of, I actually think this guy was there a lot. Now, that would lead to new questions, though. I mean, if you were an unclean spirit, Samuel, and we know you're not, would you want to hang out at a synagogue? First glance, no. Right, and I'm the same way. My first thought would be, no. But then you also have to wonder, maybe this is good strategy. Maybe this is kind of timeless strategy. Maybe this is in the vein of Sun Tzu. Know your enemy. Hmm. It's really difficult to know. It could be this guy just happened to show up on this day at this time. Nobody's ever seen him before or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. Or it could be. Anywhere in between, but it could be that this guy, he was there all the time. Every week, everybody knew him. Maybe he even seemed normal. I don't know. It's, it's, and that, the beauty of these stories, they give you just enough information to think you know what you know, but then all of a sudden, ah, eh, you don't know what you know. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not really sure of anything. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, there's Mark using that word immediately. I don't know. Next in the sequence of events, but, uh, here's another thing. This unclean spirit. I don't, I, I don't know that we've talked about this in the podcast up to this point. So let's, let's give it some sort of definition. An unclean spirit. So we might, let's back way off and we could go, well, it is a malevolent, uh, supernatural being or force of some kind, right? Uh, we could say that. Uh, and and that's fine. Uh, if we were to look through Scripture a little bit more, it's going to help us, I think, paint a slightly better picture. We, we're going to find things like, it seems that they can influence people. It seems that they can menace people, maybe even oppress people. And in the worst cases, it seems they can even possess people. And I'm sure this isn't all. Um, But we also see things like they can be responsible for physical problems, maybe some sort of sickness or some sort of madness or whatever else you can think of, just any physical thing. We also see that they can work alone or they can work in great numbers and everywhere in between, whatever great is, right? and. They can even be great numbers within a single individual. I mean, this is crazy, all of these things. And also, I guess this is important, at least for the story we're talking about, they can be exercised, which is just kind of a fancy word for saying expelled, pushed out, sent away, whatever. And then, Okay, this is my brain, but go with it for a second. Did you notice that Luke calls it the spirit of an unclean demon. So I ask you, Samuel, is there such a thing as a clean demon? (laughs) Yeah, why would you want to put that adjective in front of 
that character in the story. I don't know. It's very, very strange. And the uncleanness, this is also kind of interesting, I think. If we were looking at it from a, a word perspective, like trying to understand the text, that unclean is more like impure, the way we think of I'm not able to enter into the tabernacle or or things like that, as opposed to unclean like an unclean animal, just for whatever that's worth, so you know the difference there. Oh, here's another one. Uh, <laughs> remember the one in Luke's story, uh, the the demon cried out with a loud voice, mm-hmm. ha, what have you to do, <laughs> right? Well, the word ha, I have no idea why it's translated that way in the English. It's not helpful at all. And it actually means something more like, leave me alone or leave us alone or something like that. That would be so much better to be yeah. in the text. But ha! <laughs> so, kids, whenever you're having, you know, disagreements with your siblings and you don't want to get in trouble with your parents, instead of screaming out things like leave me alone how about you just go (laughs) see what that does for you love it (laughs) i don't think it's gonna work but whatever so uh, what else uh notice oh oh look at the questions look at the questions that he asks what have you to do with us now if you just stopped right there you might be thinking well it sounds like they really don't know what Jesus is doing there, and so, you know, they have to ask, but I'm going to suggest, based on their their next question, that they really do kind of know, they're just, they're not understanding something. The next question is, have you come to destroy us? Well, why would you ask that question unless you already had some idea that that was, you know, the reason that you were there? And so, there are many who think that when, when, you, when you look at the questions, the way they're asked, they think that this is implying that it's not that they don't understand, and it's not that they're uh, surprised in the general sense, but it's more like they're surprised by the timing. It's almost like they're saying, we know our end is to be destroyed by you, eventually. But what are you doing here today? We weren't expecting you now. Which, you know, I think that has some merit. I think that's a reasonable way to look at the questions and what was really going on behind it. It also fits with our general view of how things are going to work out. Jesus was here his first time. He did act as what we call the suffering Messiah, but we expect his return. And the things that we expect on his return include them being, okay, technically not destroyed exactly at that point, but they're certainly going to be bound and, and all of that. So, so their expectation kind of makes some sense, and their you know, surprise at the timing would also make some sense as well, if it's true. I don't know. We're just throwing it out there as possible. Yeah, and it adds another point to the dynamic nature of Jesus' story in the Gospels that we've seen before about him needing to get out of town because of the timing of people finding out and uh, his later death needing to be at a certain moment rather than people catching him and planning to kill him beforehand. I don't know. It just adds more to that dynamic nature of the story of like, they didn't didn't realize that he was going to show up on that day. Yeah, but noticing all of these things, at least to me, it thickens the plot. Mm -hmm. It's like these stories, we're so familiar with them, and they already seem rich and good, but the more you slow down and focus and notice all the bits, it just becomes richer and richer and richer and richer. It's just kind of cool. Now, another thing interesting that happens, notice when he speaks, uh, this unclean spirit, okay, number one, Seems obvious that he knows exactly who Jesus is. And it's interesting that the Spirit identifies him in two ways. First, he calls him Jesus of Nazareth, which is kind of like identifying in, in I don't know, in creation or in the natural or who he is as a human or whatever. But then he also identifies him, uh, well, you could say like 
who he really is, or maybe you would say in the spiritual or something of that nature. He calls him the Holy One of God. And that also is super interesting because that phrase is really rare. The Holy One of God. It's not a common phrase for Jesus. It's not a common phrase in in much of any of like other Jewish writings in the Bible or whatever. Now, we do know that God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. So that's kind of close. And we do have one instance where Moses was actually referred to as the Holy One of God. Hmm. And we've already talked about that parallel, the first Redeemer and the second Redeemer or the ultimate Redeemer, if mm-hmm. we call it that. So there's that. But it's it's just, it's odd that this demon, this unclean spirit is choosing that phrase. And we know just thinking of the individual parts, the individual words of the phrase, it's the one, the one who stands apart from all of the rest, the holy one. And it's the one we we know, making the connection, we know that it's the one through whom God is going to fix the world. He's It's his Messiah, the one through whom, let's just say, evil and sin, etc., all of that is going to disappear. So, I don't know. The Holy One of God. That's kind of cool. And then we get this uh, very interesting example. I guess this is the first time we've seen it here going through the scriptures and the podcast. Jesus exercises that spirit. He casts him out. And, and, and this is going to kind of what you said a minute ago. He shuts him up before he can say anything more, although he did get some stuff out. And he commands him to come out of the man. And, okay, we read that and we think that is extraordinary. True? Definitely. Okay. However, back then, this was also extremely extraordinary, but we need to still still put it within its context. So exorcism is a thing that, okay, like today, we probably know of it uh, if we know of it, we know of it like through the Catholic Church or maybe the popular culture movie, The Exorcist, mm-hmm. or, you know, some things like that. And and I would venture to say that a substantial majority of people know what exorcism or, or an exorcist is. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things everybody knows. Well, that was also true back in Judaism. It was, you know, commonly known and a somewhat common thing. And we even have, outside the Bible, uh writings, and and they talk about exorcism, some of them actually in great detail. In some, you will find instructions. This is how you do it. Uh, Some, I don't know what else to call them. They kind of look like uh, incantations, which, you know, Christians were usually bothered by that. But Mm -hmm. these are things that existed, whatever. It was part of the the culture and the time. So you see some incantations, uh, some things that that seem like ritual, uh, etc., And so people knew of it. It was probably an extraordinary thing in and of itself in in that way. But Jesus does it by only commanding, and it's done. And you just got to imagine the entire room of people looks like the uh, a bunch of mind blown emojis. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, (laughs) right? (laughs) They're all just going, "Oh my gosh, did you see what he did? All he did was talk." And this happened. Is it? It's an important image to see and and know that people are just blown away by this. And then <laughs> I love this part. The spirit leaves, but one final act of rebellion. He's going to throw that man to the floor, right? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, I, I growing up as a teenager, I get this and uh, throw him to the floor, sir. Oh yes, throw him to the floor. <laughs> Got to pull out some, you know, movie reference there. Oh, yeah. But one final act of rebellion, he throws him to the floor, but it mentions he does him no actual harm. The other one says convulsing him, right? That kind of thing. So it's just funny. This spirit, he knows who he is. He can't help but obey. And yet he's got to throw one final little dig in there where he can. Mm -hmm. Demons are boogers. Yeah, they are. That's all I'm going to say. Well... Let's see. Let's see if we can get uh, maybe one more little section in here. Uh, You got anything before I move on, Samuel? No, keep going. This is great. All right. 
Okay. So Mark 127 through 29 and Luke 436 to 38. Mark 127. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Luke's story is similar. 4.36 And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. I'm going to cheat and cut off verse 38 right there for now. So, again, uh, Mark using the word immediately. And I, I actually think this is kind of funny. In verse 28 where it says, and at once his fame spread. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same word. In the Greek, for every time they said immediately. I think the English translators just got tired of writing the word immediately. <laughs> so they tried to mix it up a little bit at once. I don't know what it is. Mark is just like immediately, immediately, immediately. It's very weird. Uh, so anyway, there's that. Um, now, both Mark and Luke, they've already said that Jesus' teaching had authority. And so there's kind of a repeat here. And so let's see what, what they're doing. Mark seems to be repeating the bit about teaching with authority because he, at least the way it appears to me, he's trying to connect that same authority with the exorcism. It's, it's kind of like, in one sense, it's highlighting the degree of his authority, and at the same time, it's, it's kind of like his way of showing that God is endorsing his teaching and his authority through the exorcism, through the the display of authority or power, or whatever you want to call it. And then Luke, he kind of seems to take a different approach. He's it's almost like he's separating the teaching from the exorcism, you know, and even in the way he words this question, what is this word? It's not didache, which is teaching, it's logos, like these things that he just said. And 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 kind of feels like that's more like the commanding of the demon, right? And and so it also has authority and power, but they each seem to be treating it slightly differently. I don't know. I I think that's interesting. And then okay, just like everything else we do, Samuel. Every time Jesus does some sort of miracle, what do we say he's doing there, Samuel? It is a. It's always like a foretaste of the kingdom yeah yeah it's a sign of the king well the exorcism it's the same thing it's another sign of the kingdom so just like we've talked about uh abundance was one of the things we we keep trying to point out about the kingdom we see in the miracles uh no sickness is another thing we we tried to uh, uh, attach to uh, kingdom life well during the kingdom all activity and influence of demons like this will be gone. Now, they're going to return later in the story, but that's, you know, we're not going there now. That's for another day. But again, even the exorcism is a sign or a foretaste of the kingdom. It's a way of, you know, through through an action, through a sign, it's a way of saying Jesus is the long-awaited and promised king. I just think it's important we keep pointing that out. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, this whole thing is an amazing event, both the teaching and the exorcism just by speaking alone. And so news begins to spread quickly in the region. And I'm guessing that all of us who've ever lived anywhere around people, we know what that's like. News travels fast. Mm -hmm. So here's a question, though, Samuel. Why is it that no one is upset that Jesus has done this on the Sabbath? Oh, that's such a good point. Was it that exorcism was okay, but healing is not? That doesn't make sense, right? 
Well, I'm just going to offer probably the simplest of explanations. There was no Jewish leadership here. These are just regular, ordinary, everyday people. And they're just loving and accepting this thing that's going on. And it's amazing and astonishing. And, and they, they see in these acts mercy and justice. They see authority. They, I think, see images of the kingdom. And they're just willing to receive it. They just love it. There's no Jewish leadership around to actually get upset and bothered. Yeah, I also wonder if there's a possibility that, because we've talked about how Jesus is prioritizing and revealing to the common people and to the Jewish leadership that what should take priority on the Sabbath, if there is an option to do so, is to choose to alleviate the suffering of those that are hurting their oppression over the the cultural or the ritualistic aspect that the leadership is, you know, pushing the the nation to do. And I wonder yeah. if this is like an example where, um, if there was a, a sense of urgency in which the oppression or the suffering was happening, where people could see it happening on a visceral level, like in this case of a an ex, exorcism. Be someone being possessed where it's changing their voice or their their body movements, etc., compared to, like, I know we had the story about the man who was invalid for 38 years. Like, I wonder if Jewish leadership saw that as, like, since it's less severe or it, it's something that's been going on for a long time that they, in their minds, they just didn't register that as even those people need their suffering alleviated compared to this person mm-hmm. that, you know, just dropping dead or having a heart attack or being possessed by a demon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the different ways that we categorize things, mm-hmm. right? Um, we we do stuff like that all the time. I think that this is in the category of super bad. Yeah. And the guy sitting next to me, no, oh, it's just bad. Yeah. It's not super bad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very possible. It's just funny to notice it. Mm-hmm. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he does this amazing thing, and nobody's upset. Mm-hmm. Love it. All right, so last little bit, uh, Jesus leaves the synagogue, and uh, let's just go ahead and note this, because it's important. It's an obvious, it's another rule of show business. You always leave them wanting more, right, Samuel? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a joke. Nobody's suggesting that Jesus is a showman. Okay. Yeah. Uh, But he leaves the synagogue and he goes to Simon's house, which, interestingly, is very close by. Like, literally, just uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, a few dozen yards or something. Uh, And, 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 okay, I don't know how certain we are, but it just seems like pretty much everybody I read or saw pictures of or whatever, everybody thinks this is where the synagogue was, this is where Simon's house was. They treat it like it's fact, and they are really close together. But anyway, Simon's house, remember like the boat? We talked about the boat, and it's like, yeah, I think it's probably bigger than we would imagine. Well, Simon's house also was probably larger than many of us may imagine. And I'm not saying that all houses were in this case. I'm just saying Simon's was. So it it had multiple rooms, had a couple courtyards. You could probably even imagine like a, a roofed area where people could could actually sit, stand, talk, sleep, whatever. And so you might even be led to believe Simon actually had a rather successful fishing business. Hmm. Because I don't know if you remember Simon's house. When they talked about Simon before, they said that he he grew up in Bethsaida. But now he's in Capernaum. And, you know, maybe a childhood home, maybe, maybe whatever. But he's got a pretty big house, so Simon may have actually been somewhat of a success uh, in his business. Anyway, we, we don't know, but it's, it's a guess. Now, remember, Mark tells us that it was uh, Jesus and, and Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and they're going, they're, they're leaving the synagogue, it's on the Sabbath, they're going back to Simon's house, and given everything that we know about the culture, they're probably going back to have the afternoon Sabbath meal together. 
And I think it's important that we see that just to go, again, Jesus, disciples, they're Jewish, they're doing all the Jewish things, Sabbath is a day filled, and they're, they went to the synagogue, and now they're going to have a meal together, and all of the things that we know about the, the meal and the singing and all that, that's what these guys are doing. They're living the Jewish life, because that's who they are. I don't know. I think it's just a great picture. It sounds like a wild Sabbath day for Jesus and his disciples, just going and performing an exorcism and then trotting back home to have a meal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a little outside our box. Yeah. But, you know, that's the story we're, we got. Now, I think we got to stop. We're uh, uh, getting close to end of time. And, you know, these sections are a little bit bigger. Um than normal because we're doing across all of the the gospel stories together where we can. Uh, so we will pick up next time at Peter's house. Before we officially close, close. Uh, can I can I add one last comment and put, go back to something that you mentioned as a question that maybe other people might be thinking about really quickly? By all means. So I really like that you spent time talking about the two different gospel accounts saying, you know, what is this teaching with authority? And then the Luke version was, what is this word and what the writer is focusing on? It it sent me back to Genesis because it seems like Luke is indicating that almost as if Jesus' words, like the speaking of the words, had authority. And when we see God... In Genesis 1, verse 3, the first time that he speaks in the biblical story, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And so that just seems very reminiscent to me where, you know, you have this man right here who is saying something, and then it came to be so, which I feel like if you were a Jewish person that knew your Torah, your your mind might be going to that in that moment. Yeah, great connection. Love it. And then my question, this goes back to, um, let's see, in Mark uh, 1, 21 and 22 and Luke 4, 31 and 32, uh, uh, specifically the Mark version when it says, they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I didn't realize that the scribes had a teaching role within their position in the Jewish leadership system. I always picture the scribes as those that are solely dedicated to copying the text, you know, to continue the passing on of God's word with historicity and authenticity and precision. So did the scribes actually have a teaching role within their position as well? Yeah, um, I don't think it would have been uh, like we imagine, uh, you know, lowercase r, rabbi teaching, or, uh, now now think about a synagogue, remember how we said uh, you might start with a priest if one was available, and then you might have a Levite if one was available, mm-hmm. you might also have the, a similar kind of thing for a scribe. Okay. Uh, but but the to connect this to the teaching, um, one of the other ways that we will see scribes referred to as experts in the law. So they weren't only experts with pen and ink and parchment. It wasn't that they were only skilled in writing copy, mm-hmm. but, but along with that was the understanding. And, and, and the, the, the theory kind of that goes along with it is you're less likely to make a mistake if you are fully familiar with the subject. Mm -hmm. If if you're just a a glorified copy machine and you just, you know, do letters and words and whatever, you don't really know what you're talking about, well, you're going to mess up because there's there's no real connection there for you. So they were very well learned. And yeah, it is odd that that teaching seems to, to show up in this way, but... Uh, the idea of them being experts in the law, that was a common thing. We'll actually see that phrase in the Gospels. Yeah. Oh, that's good. It enlightens that 
part of the story and gives us more to think about. So that's good. Yeah, no doubt. And boy, I can't even begin to tell you how much more there is to see and know and understand than we're ever going to get out on this podcast, Mm -hmm. even at our pace. Yeah. It's good stuff. Okie dokie. Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you are notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time so that you never miss an episode. Please feel free to also leave us a review on your podcasting app telling us how this content is impacting your life in a positive way. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.